Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 12, verses 1 through 3, Solomon expresses the despair of going through life and suffering in essence alone. That to suffer under life and all of the hevel, the mist, the vanity of it, and to do so alone, it's really better to never have lived than to see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. But what if that's not an option? And it's not an option. You don't get to wiggle your nose and just poof, not exist. There is a call to strive. There is a call to toil. And how is that toil and that striving lightened? We see this evening. Beginning in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask that we might be those who do not see that strength is found in doing something on our own and that prizes are best enjoyed on our own. Lord, that we might delight in the pleasure, in the satisfaction, in the comfort and strength that comes in two by two or three by three to be a family, a congregation, a body. Help us to see the beauty of this so that we might toil more faithfully, delight more deeply, and be protected against the things that are coming. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. This evening we look at a text that I think for us um, is essential if we are to understand and to survive and to thrive in a world that wants to separate, to divide and to conquer. It's interesting that when 
Satan comes to our first parents, Eve and Adam. We see only one of them dialoguing with the serpent. Where is Adam? Isn't that sort of a natural question? Where is he? Well, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, certainly. What should Adam have done? Gotten a stick and beat the tar out of that serpent. To put it, I don't know, colloquially enough, that's what I would have done. That's what we do with serpents in my house. We pull out the shovel and we cut their heads off. This is what Christ did. And in Christ's strength, he has given us victory over the grave. But what that does not mean is that much of life is, or that the difficulties of life, are we are somehow alleviated of those things. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you live in a, a world filled with rainbows and sunshine. Life is difficult. Now, some would seek to equip themselves against the hurt of the world by saying, I am going to cut myself off so that I cannot be hurt. Lewis reflects upon this principle. You can do that, but what you're in fact doing is you're putting your heart in a casket. And there in that casket, in the loneliness and the dark, it will slowly die. No, we are made to be together. We cannot be anything other than what we are made to be, and that is to be together because we are those who are made in the image of God who has for all eternity dwelt in the fellowship of the persons of the Godhead, which means if we are made by a God who is personal and who delights in the company of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we delight in the same kind of thing. That is fellowship. Now, if you say, well, I don't like that, I'm telling you, you will not survive Not only will you not survive, but if you do not let go of whatever pride or disdain or the excuse of introversion that you may have to neglect fellowship with even just one more human being, just one, (laughs) life, according to Solomon, is better off having never been lived. If we are to thrive in a life under the sun, if we are to delight, if we are to be comforted, if we are to be protected, we must live together. And it begins by destroying envy. And then it is nurtured by eating and fighting and lying down together. Those are really the two points. The first is the curse of envy and what envy does to sow division among men whether they are a church body or any other kind of body, envy is a curse. And then secondly, the second point, which is what secondly means, (laughs) eating and fighting is better together. Eating and fighting is better together. Let's talk about the curse of envy. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil... And all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, what is Solomon saying? That your most natural and insidious motivation is to keep up with the Joneses. Do you know what I mean by that? If your neighbor has something or is doing something and you look at what they have and are doing and you say, well, I want that too. That's envy. And much of mankind throughout much of history has labored, 
has gone to war over, has stolen, has killed, has lusted over the things that belong to another. In fact, the whole end of the Ten Commandments are about how God is confronting this rabid appetite to have what someone else has. So you're not to take it, you're not to lie to get it, and you're not to think about it being yours if God has not given it to you. And so envy is not competition per se. There is some healthy competition that drives us, iron sharpening iron. Solomon is talking about destructive envy. Not a competitive spirit, but I want what he has. I want it. You know who I'm talking about? The kid that complains. They were perfectly happy with their toy that they got secondhand until they saw the other kid open it in the box. And they look at it and go, I want that one. Well, why do you want that? Because he has it. I want both of them. (laughs) Give them all to me. Now, we don't ever grow out of this, do we? Whether it is land or natural resources or a person, Men have, for millennia, invaded territories, homes, private spaces to take that which does not belong to them because they are motivated by greed and envy. Is there anything more satanic than envy? It is, in fact, the sin of Lucifer that led to his downfall. He wished to be like God. And though made beautiful, adorned with glory, As an angel of heaven, he coveted and was envious of that which could only belong to God. And so he spread his false gospel to the woman and to the man by saying to them and authorizing in their hearts what we call envy. Did God really say, do you not wish to be like God? Do you, woman, do you, man, see what God has and how he's holding it back from you? Look, look at his neglect. And of course, they saw the fruit as an opportunity to take for themselves what only God can give. And since that time, man has been in a sorry race to take and to steal and to bite and devour the things that belong to others. And so the origin of envy is satanic. And envy as a motivation is incredibly destructive. To be motivated to labor in this unrighteous way to keep up with the Joneses. Are you all familiar with that? He got one. Can I have one? Kids, have you ever said, he got a dessert? Why can't I have a dessert? And what you're constantly doing is you're tabulating in the back of your mind, you're keeping a record of, have I gotten as much as my sibling? Do you know what I'm talking about? Kids, Well, he got two desserts yesterday that weigh a total of X ounces. So if he got three cookies, what is the scientific formula for the way it converts to Hershey's Kisses? 
and you devote an enormous amount of time to, is it by quantity? Is it by weight? All I know is, if it's not equal, I'm going to pitch a fit. And what do your parents say? What, are we communists? Or is that just me? (laughs) Is this Venezuela? Where no one gets anything. (laughs) It's actually all mine, if we're really being honest. What does this acting upon envy do? Does it lead to sharing? Does it lead to rejoicing when others, when they have something great happen to them? You know, the new car they drive up to church in, the new house they've moved into. I know a lot of us will get on social media and we follow these people who are living lives and we look at those lives and we say, gosh, if only, ellipsis, my life were like that. Now, I think even in my family, we could, we could probably muster enough sort of peace for enough time to film 15 30-second videos in a day that would make everybody wish they could be like us. (laughs) I bet we could do it. I think we could. Although, you know, crossing my fingers. And this is what we call a blessed life. It's a life that is filled with stuff. It is a life filled with things that are constantly appeasing our boredom. It is a life that is filled with The absence of worry about money and the future. And you know what all of those things are? Those are lies that the envious tell themselves that others don't have to worry about. And so I will pursue those things so that I get what I think they have. And do you know what they have? The same exact envy that you have. Now, they may not envy you, but they envy the other guy with the bigger yacht. There's always a bigger yacht. Let me tell you, there's always a bigger yacht. What envy does, look at this, is it creates a kind of cannibalism. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. It is self-destructive. If you are driven by a personal goal of success at the expense of others, guess who you will be dining with? Have you ever seen someone eat in a nice restaurant alone? Or any restaurant alone? Have you ever eaten in a restaurant alone without looking at your cell phone? Just sitting there. Why are you on your cell phone if you're at a restaurant alone? Because you're alone. It's so weird Now, being in a coffee shop is one thing, but dining is another. People walk in, they see you eating there, and there's just one wine glass and one place setting, and people walk in and go, who's this weirdo? Why is he there? What's wrong? This is the end of all human relationships if you allow envy to creep in. You're left alone. You're left alone. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, this is a lot like Solomon's other proverb. Better is a dinner or a cheerful heart in a... I'm sorry, let me just read it. 
All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. It's like going on that first date. I don't know if you ever had one of those first dates where you just think, when can I pull the ejection handle? Because this is not going well. That kind of strife. You know, you overshare something or maybe your personalities immediately clash and you're sitting there at the table and you're just thinking, I don't know how to get out of this. Can I text someone at the table that can call me and say, your dog is dying. I got to go. My dog is dying. It is better. It is better to delight in the things of earth, even though it is little, if there is peace, than to have a huge spread prepared before you and you cannot get along with the people who are at the table. Now, let me give you some insight into the way power is corrupted through satanic means. We live in a day and age where as it relates to our largest membership as a nation, we are within the boundaries of a state who are ruled by people who are striving to sow envy among its citizens in order to create what? Chaos, hatred, and bitterness. Why? Why does Satan do this? Because it's a very efficient means to disrupt, to disrupt the building of the kingdom of Christ that thrives on what? Togetherness. Peace. Sincere fellowship. And so we must reject all motivation that is rooted in envy. Get rid of it. Jettison it. Be content with what you have, even if it's just a handful if the promise of two handfuls means what? You had to sin to get there. It's not worth it. It's like what John says in Revelation. It's a sick bed, not a bed of life. All right, that leads me then to my second point. The blessing of real togetherness or eating and fighting is better together. Now, there are three ways here that we see that being together is being apart, that laboring for a common goal together is better than fighting and um, laboring for the, the, uh, out of envy. The first that we see in verses 7 and 8, again, I saw vanity under the sun. So it's not gone away. There's still hevel. There's still mist and vapor. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Think Scrooge. What was the point of Scrooge's wealth? And that's the question put to the reader. Scrooge has all of this money, but he's unwilling to even put a, another log in the fire to warm himself and his clerk. He is so selfish in his amassing of wealth, he doesn't even understand what wealth is for. Scrooge is the quintessential 
narcissist. And the way in which he gathers wealth, what is the point? And Solomon asks that question. What is the point if there's no one to share it with? That if we are to endure the vanity of this life, we do so better by giving away what we have. So that we're not left at the end of our days going, what was the point? Why did I have all this? What am I going to do with it all? I have a relative who is relatively independently wealthy. And at the end of his life, not knowing Christ, he's going to give all that he has to this consortium of researchers that are endeavoring to discover the meaning of life. What? I can tell you what the meaning of life is, and I'll do it for free. (laughs) Give money to someone else. This is what I mean. We flitter away all that we work for when we don't know what we're doing it for. Look at that question. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Now compare that with the first time you spent your own money on Christmas gifts or a birthday gift for a friend or family member. And the anticipation. You've worked hard. And it looks like maybe to your immature mind and heart that still thinks, if I buy this gift, my money, will, my checking account will go down. Well, yes, it will go down. You will have less money after buying that gift than when you did buy the gift. But when you buy the gift, you have this opportunity to bless someone with the resources that you have worked hard to achieve. And then you see them open the gift. It doesn't have to be expensive. But it's precious. Maybe you made it. And you've thought long and hard about it. It's a gift of great price. And you receive an immense amount of joy from giving that thing to them that brings them joy. That is what Solomon is talking about. Do you wish to experience and to answer the question of why we are doing what we are doing? Well, one of the reasons that we're doing what we're doing is so that we might say, I know why I've done it. And why have we done it? So that we can share in the joy of it. In Luke chapter 3, we read of Christ's own disposition of charity. And it begins with a question. The crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That we derive in life under the sun the simple satisfaction of having objects to share our things with. 
When we give, we enter into the blessed joy that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have known together for all eternity. We bless one another with the things that God has blessed us with. And not only that, there's another one. We see in verses 9 through 11, two are better than one because they have a good reward for all their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. And he continues, there is reward and warmth for sowing in unity. So not only is it good to take what we have and give it to others, but there is actually wisdom in laboring together for it. Have a partner. Go out two by two. Labor together. The work that you can accomplish when you labor together is greater than that when you work alone. One of the reasons is if you trip or if you go down, someone else can continue to labor. It just makes sense. We call this the division of labor, which means this. I can prepare every week sermons so that you can come to church and hear the word of God preached. And what you're doing is you're laboring and bringing in your tithe and you're providing to me the means of feeding my family and clothing my family. Now, some of the sort of global marketplace oftentimes hides those things, but we all have a function. We're laboring together, and we're laboring for a purpose. We're laboring for fruit. We don't just plant the seed and then leave it there. We go back and we harvest when it's time. We labor for the reward, the good reward of verse 9. And we do it together because two are better than one. Because the reward is greater. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. I've fallen alone. It gets harder as you get older when you fall and you're alone. How much better to have another if you can. And not just that. Not only is there a greater reward, is there greater support, but there is greater warmth and comfort. Solomon isn't always talking about marriage here, but here it makes a little bit of sense. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? He's not talking about snuggling, but he's kind of talking about snuggling. What does he mean? At the end of a long day, after 13 years of marriage, I don't want to go be by myself. I am rejuvenated in the presence of my spouse. Sometimes at the end of a long day, I want to sit down with a a brother in the faith and just talk and relax. And that lying down together is somewhat metaphorical. Relax. Look at the field we just harvested and we're done. We did that together. But if you are biting and envious, do you know what you're doing? You do your field, I do mine. Don't touch my field. It used to be that people would come together, and if someone moved to the community, they would all get together, and they would build a barn, or they would build a house, and they would have these house-building, barn-building parties, and the whole neighborhood, the whole community, I guess it's not a neighborhood if you live out in the country, but the whole community would come together. Did you say bring a pie? Yeah. Of course, there's pie. It's the fellowship meal. This is why we will always have a fellowship meal. 
Because when we sit down and we break bread together, what we are doing is we are reminding ourselves it's better together. Virtual church doesn't work for this reason. It's one of many reasons. Because you're isolated. We must see that there is great reward and warmth in sowing in unity. And not just that. Look at verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. There isn't just reward and support and comfort and satisfaction when we give and we labor with one another. There is actually protection. Because we're not just farmers, we're soldiers. And we're fighting in a war. And what Satan would seek to do is to come into the camp and divide us. And Christians are often easily scattered. Our hearts are soft. We're open to one another. And when someone hurts us, it hurts because our chests are open. And you can wound right into the meat of that heart. But if we are to survive, if we are to prevail against the one who would seek to disrupt the work of our homes, the work of our churches, the work of establishing Christian nations, we must do it together. We must. We cannot do it any other way. And it is not only in Christ that we are strong. For if it were enough for Adam to be with his God in the garden, God would have never sent him Eve, right? It is glorious to be welcomed into the fellowship of the Godhead as saints. But Christianity and faithfulness and kingdom work cannot be done, just me, Jesus, and my Bible. It must be done together. Find a body and dig deep and knit yourself to that body. That's the language, isn't it? It is the language of being woven together, of being knitted together. And when we are woven and knitted together, and listen, I know there's friction in the church. There are times where you look at that other cord and that cord is right wrapped around your life and you're going, good, this is some heat. There's some friction here. We need to, we need, this is why the Lord's Supper is so is so essential in our life as a body. The table reminds us, listen, the people that you're knitted together with, they're sinful and you need to keep short accounts. But the alternative is what? To be alone. And when trials and temptations and sufferings and persecutions and just life comes knocking, if you open that door and you're alone, you will not prevail. You will be swept away. And this is where Solomon says, it would have been better had you never been alive than to face the challenges of life alone. No, instead, do it together. As I have in my notes, do it for the sake of victory. Because you cannot escape life under the sun. But you can live according to God's wisdom and righteousness. And what he says is this, it is better to do it together. So what is a church then? A church is a group of people who labor graciously, seeking joy in giving and serving others, 
It is a group of people who labor together for the same goal because the reward is greater and there is support and there is warmth and there is comfort. And we are to labor and fight together as a body because together we will be victorious. We can prevail. We can prevail if we are together. All right, does that sound sappy enough? I I don't want it to sound sappy. I want it to sound like the, the blueprint for how we will succeed as families and as a church in this world that does not seek our survival. We must do it together. Let's pray. Our Lord, I go in this...